So Genesis or uh, Exodus 6, our, our, our text this morning in Exodus is a repeat. Almost verbatim, God is going to say in Exodus 6 what he already said in Exodus 3. So like I said, our text this morning is a, uh, it's a, it's a repeat. So in other words, we don't have anything to learn or say. We'll just read the text and then we'll pray and go, right? And then, no, 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 we got preaching to do. And I'm excited to, to do that. So let me just catch you up on the context of chapter six. Um, in response to Moses' lament at the end of chapter five, um, wasn't, wasn't that heartbreaking last week? Moses' lament where he tried to deliver uh, the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and it didn't work. And he just poured his heart out to God. And he said, God, you promised you would deliver your people. You haven't delivered your people at all. It was heartbreaking. And Moses just poured his heart out. And in response to that, at the beginning of chapter six, God is going to repeat the promise that he already made to Moses in the midst of the burning bush in chapter three. And one of my arguments this morning is that we are very very blessed that God repeats himself. I, I love the fact that our God is a God of loving repetition for so many different reasons, a plethora of them. I'm not gonna go through all of them, but from a preaching standpoint, one of the benefits of God repeating himself is that it allows me as a preacher to limit our exegetical focus to something in chapter six that we intentionally didn't limit our focus to in chapter three. If you were with us for chapter three, um, when we went through this promise of God saying, hey, I'll deliver my people out of Egypt, we focused our attention on the fact that God promised to free his people from something. Slavery in Egypt. This time around in chapter 6, what we're going to do is we're going to focus our attention on the fact that God promises to free his people, not just from something, but for something. Namely, the promised land. And so we'll spend most of our morning, most of our time in this text trying to grasp this sweeping, this cosmic, this eternal, this huge purpose of God all throughout the scriptures to give his people a promised land. This is a promise that God never quits on. This is a promise that God never gives up on. This is a promise that God creatively rephrases in dozens of different ways from Genesis to Revelation, from Old Testament all the way to New Testament. And so we'll do something of a theology of the promised land this morning, and then we'll, we'll push off from the text, we'll, we'll push off from our theology, and we'll ask some huge questions like, like, uh, what's it mean for me that God promised land to Abraham a long, long time ago? Why does that matter? What's, why, does it, why does it matter for me that God promises that same land to the enslaved Israelites in Exodus a long, long time ago? And I'm telling you right up front that the task of understanding a sweeping theology of the promised land and why that matters, that task, is it, it's about like taking a rubber band and trying to stretch it around the globe. You can't do it. You can't do it. We're not going to be able to do it this morning, but we're going to try, and I think it's worth trying because a good grasp of the promised land, what it's gonna do is it's actually going to help us understand the doctrine of salvation as a biblical mosaic. Do you guys know what I'm saying when I say mosaic? A, a mosaic is it's one of those beautiful pictures that's composed of tons of different images that all form together for one unified picture. That's, 
That's a mosaic. And, and I say that salvation is a biblical mosaic because all throughout the scriptures, the biblical understanding of salvation is being saved from something, also being saved into something, and also being saved for something, from something, into something, and for something. And if our understanding of salvation is only one of those two things, then we will have a skinny, mal malnourished, fragile understanding of what God wants to accomplish by saving us. One of, um, one of my favorite theologians, he, he talks about this skinny understanding of salvation uh, this way. This is, this is such a good analogy. It's helpful for me. He says, when human beings are saved, this is always so that they can be genuine human beings in a fuller sense than they otherwise would have been. So to suppose that we are saved only for our private forgiveness of sins and benefits, no matter how awesome that is, but to say that we are only saved for our private forgiveness of sins is like giving a boy a baseball bat as a present and insisting that he must always and only play with it in private. What's the problem with that? The problem is obvious, right? Of course you can only do what you're meant to do with a baseball bat when you're playing with other people on a baseball field. And salvation is the same way. It only does all that it's meant to do when those who have been saved fully realize that they're not only saved as souls, but as wholes, and not for themselves alone, but for what God longs to do through them. So let me rephrase it this way. To be saved from something, to be saved from Egypt, is amazing. To be saved from your sin, to be saved from the penalty of your debt. Jesus Christ accomplished that on the cross, and that's awesome, amen? amen. And that's a part of the mosaic of salvation, not the whole mosaic of salvation. Look really close for that in our text this morning. I think you'll see it. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're doing Exodus 6, verses 1 through 13. Moses, he pours his heart out in lament to God. You haven't delivered your people at all. In verse, chapter 6, verse 1, but the Lord said to Moses, now, after all of this, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. And then God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. But I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners, but never owned. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. 
And Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but again, they didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, again to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel haven't listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. A wonderful text. Wow. You could have a seat. Okay, so in the beginning of chapter six, God's response to Moses' lament begins with a very, very, I think it's a gracious and I think it's a tender-hearted, singular word. Chapter six, verse one goes this way. But the Lord said to Moses, now, now is the time. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now is the time. And this, I don't think that we can even conceive of how sweet this would have been to Moses' ears to hear that word now. Because a long, 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 long time ago, and you get a sense of this in our text, a long time ago, God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. Technically, that promise is referred to as the Abrahamic covenant. And in this covenant and promise to Abraham, God promised to give Abraham a promised people which is many, many descendants. But another key part of the promise was to give him a promised land. And this is why, I don't know if you've ever, you've probably wondered this as you've read through the scriptures. This is why the scriptures are so replete and full of references to a promised land. And what's actually really breathtaking about God's promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis is that God actually foretells the Exodus event as a key interval as as a key middle part before they actually inherit the land, which is crazy. So if, if you don't believe me, you can go back and you can read this in Genesis 15, but literally, you guys, in Genesis 15, when God predicts and ordains the Exodus event, he says before they will inherit this promised land, they will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. God predicts. He ordains the Exodus event. And he says, hey, this is gonna go on for 400 years. And guys, it, it, it actually, sometimes as Christians, we don't ask tough questions. I, I don't know why that is. Maybe we feel like it makes God angry, but I, I, it doesn't make you a bad Christian to wonder, why 400 years, man? Why 400 years of slavery? Why so long, God? I mean, John Calvin, he was a brilliant theologian. And all the way back in the 1500s, he wrestled with that same question, right? Why not deliver the Israelites out of Egypt at year 399 rather than year 400? For that matter, why not year 150? For that matter, why not year why not year 0 deliver them out of Egypt? Why so long? And as Calvin, this brilliant reformed theologian was thinking about it, in his mind, God was ordaining a plan in Exodus where he could quote, this is helpful, quote, more clearly lay open his power. For if Pharaoh voluntarily yielded or had been overcome with little effort, if Pharaoh had just been like, yeah, take my people, if he had been overcome without any effort, then the glory of the victory would not have been so illustrious. So in other words, for Calvin, 
This takes so long. And God ordains so many hard hearts because God wants a really, really, really big win. He wants a big win over Pharaoh. He wants it to be public. He wants it to be painful for Pharaoh. He wants the whole world talking about it. God is not satisfied with a small victory over Pharaoh. He, our God is not a God who squeaks by the enemy. Our God is not a God who just squeezes and shimmies past the enemy at all. God wants a big win. If Exodus were baseball, God wants a 10-run rule. If Exodus were wrestling, God wants a pin. If Exodus were boxing, God wants a KO. If it were UFC, God wants a tap out from Pharaoh. And this sort of stuff matters because some of you are struggling with um, um, ongoing sin and patterns of life and patterns of thinking that God doesn't seem to be delivering you from. Is anybody in that position right now? I've been wrestling with the same thing for years and years and years. 400 years? Years and years and years and years. And could it be, guys, that God has allowed this to go on for so long because he wants a big win over that sin? He wants a big win over that struggle. And so God ordains, he, he ordains the slavery to go on for 400 years. He ordains for Moses to be stubborn as all get out. He ordains Pharaoh's hard heart. He ordains for the situation in Egypt to become so dire that the entire world would recognize that, hey, the only way these people are getting out of this situation must be a God who is big and a God who is grand. And so this isn't a full explanation of why 400 years, but it at least helps us understand why after a few botched attempts, 400 years of slavery, God finally chooses to use that one word that would have been so sweet to Moses' ears at the beginning of chapter six. God spoke to Moses and said to him, now, oh, thank God now, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. And then God goes on to repeat the promise, right? He's gonna deliver them out of Egypt. But focus in on verses four through five. I think we'll have this on the screen. Here's where I really want us to narrow our focus in as he's repeating this promise. He says, here's why. I also established my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph to give them the land of Canaan and the land in which they lived as sojourners. And moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. And guys, the reason why God says he remembered his covenant with Abraham is not because God forgets things. It's not because he has a bad memory. It's because Moses probably forgot about this, right? God's aim and his repetition to remind them of the promised land is to replant Moses in the hope of that promise. Moses, don't forget what I told Abraham. Moses, don't forget that I promised Abraham a promised land. Moses, don't be satisfied with just being freed from Egypt. I'm freeing you for the promised land. Moses, don't give up on a promised land sized hope. The square footage, Moses, of your hope should be no smaller than the square footage of the promised land. Dream big, Moses. I want to get you from slavery, and I'm freeing you for this promised land. He's freeing you for something, church. It's kind of like this, and you got to get this. Being freed from is awesome, but you got to get that you're freed for something. It's, it's, it's like this, okay? Imagine, um, Imagine rescuing a, a dolphin from an oil spill. I, oil spills are awful, they're tragic, right? They pollute the water, 
it destroys marine life. So, so imagine that you, you zoom in with the rescue team to go rescue that dolphin out of the oil spill, and you, you get that dolphin, right? You, you get him onto shore. You save that thing from the oil spill. Maybe you even, you get the exterior oiling off the dolphin. You get, you get some of that sludge out of that blowhole. The thing can finally breathe again. It gives you a little dolphin smile. Because do dolphins smile? Dolphins smile. Let's not get hung up on that right now. He gives you a little dolphin smile, right? And you're like, yes, we saved this thing from an oil spill. And you high five the crew. And you're so excited about saving them out of the oil spill that you just throw them on the beach. And you high five. And that dolphin flops, flops, flops. Yeah, we did it. We saved him from the oil spill. High five, high five. Is that dolphin free? Is that dolphin really free? Flop, flop, flop. Well, as a bystander, would you be happy with that? Would you say, hey, they did it. They saved that dolphin out of the oil spill. High five. Now that dolphin is just free to die on land. No, this is not true freedom. You need to be saved for something. And you see this type of malnourished, half-hearted understanding of salvation play itself out, not just in silly dolphin metaphors, but really ordinary ways and in really ordinary relationships. People get married for this stuff. People get married because they just want to be free from something. They want to be free from their daddy wounds. They want to be free from their loneliness. And so they fall in love with the idea of not being single, which is not the same as falling in love with marriage. I mean, from a theological standpoint, it's very possible to fall in love with the idea of having your sins forgiven without ever loving Jesus. You can do that. You can fall in love with the idea of being freed from something and never give a rip about being freed for God. This is very ordinary. So people will fall in love with the idea of not being lonely, which is not the same as falling in love with somebody. And these ideas have consequences. Somebody comes along and he doesn't really love the girl. He doesn't really cherish the girl, but he makes the loneliness go away. And so she ends up settling. We end up settling. She ends up settling and she marries the guy. Now in that marriage, she's now free from singleness, but is she really free? To be with a guy who doesn't love her, cherish her. This isn't true freedom. No, it's not God's intention otherwise to free the Hebrews out of slavery and just into homelessness. That's not what God is doing. And the reason why I'm picking on this propensity to always define freedom as freedom from is because that's totally the modern Western way to view freedom. Freedom from something. That's how most of us define freedom. Right, if I asked you to define freedom, I would guess you would say, eh, it's being free from this or being free from that. Free from constraints. Right? We want a job where, bro, we want a job where nobody tells us what to do. Then we'd be free, right? Freedom from religion. We want a spirituality. We want a God where nobody tells us what to do, who makes zero demands on our lives. Then we'd be free to be who we are. We, we think that freedom is like freedom from con convictions and freedom from covenants and freedom from relationships. We want a marriage where nobody tells us what to do after 5 p.m. That would be freedom. Would it? That'd be like a fifth of freedom. You'd be free from singleness. You might be free from loneliness. You might be more lonely. 
But that's not freedom. That's not the full mosaic of salvation that we see throughout the scriptures. The scriptures say no. Like, the scriptures say, thank God we got the dolphin out of the oil spill, but we've got to get into the clean water. This has consequences for you theologically. Thank God we got you out of the oil spill. Thank God we got you out of sin, but we got to get you into the promised land. We've got to march towards something, a place where we can feast and live and worship God, where God gives us a forever home. And so God transitions in our text this morning into this, it's this beautiful waterfall of seven different I will statements that fuel Moses for this full orb, robust hope of freedom in the future. We'll look at these together. I've got kind of a, a, a visual. There's seven I will statements. In verse six, we see the first two I will statements. God is all about God in this text. He says, I will bring you out and I will deliver you. Now, these first two I will promises, they're a promise of delivery. He will deliver them from their slavery. That's awesome. But then he transitions into uh, another I will statement and that's at the end of verse six. God gives us his third I will statement by saying, I will redeem you. Clearly, uh, this is the promise of redemption. And if you don't know what redemption is, that's totally okay because redemption is an old familial term because in biblical times, um, redemption was the responsibility uh, that went to one family member to free another family member by buying them back out of slavery. So there's this kind of familial feel with the term of I will redeem you, which really sheds light on God's next two I will statements that are in verse seven. God transitions, the I will waterfall continues to move on, and in verse seven, God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. What God's promising to do is to take them out from the rule and the reign in the household of Pharaoh and include them within the rule and reign in the household of Yahweh. He wants them in Yahweh's household. And this brings us to the last two I will statements, which are the two statements that we are really zooming in on as a local church. In verse eight, God says, and I will bring you into the promised land, and I will Give it to you as a possession. So this is the promise of God not to merely save them from prison and into the streets, but his promise to save them from prison and into a forever home. And the way that these I will statements come together and function together is that these seven I will statements end up forming a God-centered God-purposed, God-intentioned mosaic of salvation, which is full and involves being freed from serving into something and for something. I got a lot of visuals for you today. I've got another visual for this. This is not usually my style. But the mosaic is from something, into something, for something. In Exodus, it's from slavery. It's into family. It's for the promised land. And that pattern, that mosaic, doesn't ever change. The language does. In the New Testament, they kind of play around with, with language a little bit. But in the New Testament, we're saved from sin, into the church, for an inheritance. The scriptures are replete with these types of descriptions, too. I love it. Ephesians 1 tells us what we're saved from. Paul says, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You're free from that. If you're in Christ, you're free from that. 
But 2 Corinthians also tells us what we're saved for. Paul says we're saved to be his living temple. We're saved into his living temple where he is our God and we are his people. And in 1 Peter, we see texts that show us that we're actually saved for something in the future. An inheritance, Peter says, that is kept in heaven for us. A promised land. A promised land that God never quits on, never gives up on, a promise that he never intends to break. Now, the, the salvation mosaic I just had, I like that. I think it's helpful. I think it's clear. But it doesn't answer our big question for the day. Cole, why does it matter for me in the year 2019 that a long, long time ago, God promised land to Abraham Dude, I gotta go to work on Tuesday. Why does this matter? Why does it matter for me that God promised this same land to the Israelites in slavery? And I'm glad you asked because I wouldn't have a sermon if you didn't. But we could say, there's a lot of ways, there's limitless ways to answer that question. But we could say that a right knowledge of the promised land gives us a deeper knowledge of God. God wants to be known by you as a homemaker and a placemaker. God is a, he's a wonderful, skilled, talented, loving homemaker, and he's so, he's so passionate about you knowing this about his character and his works that one of the very first ways he chooses to reveal himself and his character to us in the scriptures is as a homemaker. After God created the heavens and the earth, and before he created mankind, right here, what was he doing? Why, why didn't God create mankind on day one? Day three, why day six? Genesis is actually quite clear on this. The earth was inhabitable. It was formless. It was void. The house was a mess. The furniture was unarranged. Clothing was thrown everywhere. And so God spent those first days preparing a home for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And he bubbled over with a Trinitarian eternal excitement to share that home with Adam and Eve. Know this about God. Jesus even says, hey, you want to know where I'm going? I'm going to prepare a place for you. You should know this about God. He's a homemaker. And to know this about God isn't just theological. Because we could also say that a right knowledge of the promised land doesn't just give us a deeper knowledge of God, it gives us a deeper knowledge of ourselves and some of the aches that go on inside of our hearts. G.K. Chesterton, an old writer, said, this is so painful to hear. He said that we feel homeless even in our own homes. Why? Why is there a promised land ache in our hearts? Or more famously, C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, you want to know what? If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. Lewis goes on to talk about this other world. He goes on to say, therefore, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, and I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside, but I must make the main object of my life to press on to that true country and to help others do the same. If there's an ache in your soul for the promised land, if you feel homeless in your own home, if you don't fit in anywhere, it's because you were made for the promised land. It's because there's a promised land that's waiting for you. There's, just this, this, there's this indisputable genius in the book of Genesis that helps us make sense of this desire in our gut for a better world. You're supposed to see 
the glitter in God's eyes in Genesis as he prepares a home for Adam and Eve. His eyes twinkled with excitement. You're supposed to see that. We're supposed to see the tears in God's eyes as he kicks Adam and Eve out of the promised land in Genesis that broke his heart and were meant to be reinvigorated by God's reinvigorated excitement to bring Abraham back into a promised land. Hence, this is one of the most, this is one of the biggest themes all throughout scriptures. Hence, all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, you read about the promised land and inheritance. Hence, the book of Deuteronomy repeats the promise of land 18 times. Hence, Chuck Berry and Bruce Springsteen write soul-wrenching songs called The Promised Land about a deep ache. Hence, it's all over the scriptures. Hence, God continues to repeat the promised land throughout the book of Exodus. And when God, re when God repeats himself, he doesn't waste his breath, amen? Our, our God doesn't just talk to hear himself talk. That's not who he is. He always repeats his promises with a purpose. He's trying to whip Moses up into a salvific frenzy by reminding him of the promised land. Have you ever wondered why God chose the descriptions he chooses for the promised land, like milk and honey and wine and grapes? It's not so you'd be bored by it or forget it. Or so you'd think, oh man, that sounds really great, milk and honey but I'm reformed, so I don't want to make an idol out of it, so I better not desire it that much. You're supposed to desire it. You're supposed to froth at the heart for the promised land. You're supposed to think milk and honey with Christ, I want that, right? God doesn't, he doesn't want the Israelites dragging their feet out of Egypt. He wants them drooling on their way out of Egypt. Honey, flowing milk, doesn't that sound awesome? Grapes, vines, figs, that's awesome, right? Brooks, springs, and that promised land is not merely spiritual. That promise of geographical real land for you is a promise that God intends to keep. In fact, we see this even in the book of Revelation. This is crazy. Brace yourself for this. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but in the book of Revelation, the believers in Revelation 6 who have gone to heaven and are sinless, and are in the presence of God, fully at rest, in the book of Revelation, are portrayed as still a little impatient. The, the martyrs who were slain for Christ who are in heaven in Revelation 6.10 cry out, O sovereign Lord, how long, how long before you judge on earth those who shed our blood. Think about that. They're in heaven thinking about earth. The saints are in heaven in the presence of God wanting something else to happen on earth. And it makes sense because Jesus Christ has promised them that they will inherit the earth. So they, they like heaven. Heaven is awesome. It's a place of rest. Heaven will be awesome. But they actually want more than heaven. They want heaven and earth with Christ. They want the land that was promised to Abraham. They want the land that was promised to Moses. They want the milk. They want the honey. They want the grapes. They want the figs. And if you this morning only want heaven, your desires are too small. They're too weak to be called Christian. 
In Revelation 6, those believers want Revelation 21, a new city that comes down out of heaven from God, creating a new heavens and a new earth on earth. And in our resurrected bodies, then we will join this new creation with a river that sparkles with a tree of life. And that will be our promised land. That will be where we live with Jesus forever. Amen? And if you forget about that, um, the scriptures will be right here to remind you of that. Moses forgot about that, which is why in chapter six, he has to remind Moses of the promised land. And at the end of chapter six, it's just so funny the way that it works itself out because Moses ends up rehearsing his same argument from chapter three. Remember the burning bush when he said, hey, God, I I'm slow of speech. He rehearses that same argument in chapter six. He says, I have uncircumcised lips. And it's kind of like we've been through this argument before, Moses. And just like the argument ends in chapter three, God ends the argument in chapter six, verse 13. We'll have this on the screen for you. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge, the very same one, about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt no audibles, no plan B, no halftime adjustments from God. And sometimes you just kind of wish that God had a plan B for your life, right? Like sometimes it actually frustrates you. Maybe it frustrates Moses that God continues to return to, to plan A. God is a plan A God, right? I mean, sometimes you think, God, I, I've already tried plan A. I know plan A is to preach the gospel at church, but I tried plan A last week and nobody got transformed. So what's plan B? Cole, it's plan A. Keep preaching the gospel. Right? Do you ever feel this? Like, God, step one I know is for me to love my husband, but I, I loved him and I gave him a foot massage and he didn't change and he's still a jerk. What's step number two? Belittle him? No, it's step one. Keep loving your husband. Jesus, I've tried plan A, following Jesus, and the more I follow Jesus, the more in life I lose. And so what's, what's plan number two? Is there a plan number two? And Jesus says, no, come back to plan A. Keep following Jesus. Keep loving Jesus. Keep being faithful. Keep trying the same thing that God ordains. Keep being faithful to the same Christ. And it all sounds so impossible. So I have to tell you that in the midst of this monotony, church, remember the promised land. It'll help give some dignity to the repetition and mundaneness of our lives. I don't know if Christianity ever feels mundane to you, but if you're like me, sometimes I, I just get tired of opening the same Bible and reading the same commandments and reading the same stories. Right? Sometimes I just, I love all of you, I really do, but sometimes you just get tired gathering with the same church and hearing the same gospel. Sometimes you just get tired of like in your private life praying for the for the same strength in the same dang sins that you struggle with. And years later, you're like, man, I'm still praying for this. I'm still praying for strength. Sometimes Christianity can feel so mundane. And I just think that Moses knows the monotony, you guys. All of these, these first six chapters have been so monotonous for Moses. Hey, Moses, go save the Israelites out of Egypt. I don't really want to. Hey, Moses, go save the Israelites out of Egypt. Okay, it didn't work. What now? Hey, Moses, go save the Israelites out of Egypt. I don't know if life feels like that. If it does, let me just bless you. 
don't give up. Keep walking. Keep pressing into Jesus. Keep being faithful in the things that he's called you to do. Keep taking steps. You've been freed from something. You've been freed into something. You've been freed for something. Church, I just want you to know that you have a promised land waiting for you. We are marching towards that new creation, and it's gonna be awesome. So let's pray, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper, and let's just sing our guts out this morning.